0: Well, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6. I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of Mark with you guys. We're up to verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. Give you just a minute to find it there. Mark 6. 45 to 52 is our focus for today. Do you have it there? Okay. Let's read it together. This, by the way, is the word of the living and true God. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them he went up on the mountain to pray and when evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We'll stop there today. Today's passage, it kind of holds a special place in my heart as it relates to my family, even. When my son, Micah, was very little, he used to ask us to read this particular passage to him all the time. And he got to where, I don't remember how old he was, maybe three or four at the most, he got to where he could recite the whole thing by memory. And let me tell you, it was some of the most passionate Scripture recitation that you've ever heard. I could just remember his little voice when he get to certain parts. And they thought it was a ghost. But he said to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. If you can imagine that coming from a three-year-old, four-year-old. And truthfully, uh, we didn't mind reading this passage over and over again. Uh, because it was just reminding us over and over again who our Savior is. He's the God of the universe. He's the Lord over this nature that he made. Jesus does things as proved in this passage that only God can do. He literally walks on the sea. Let's talk about that. The Bible in several places, talks about walking on the sea, and it always presents that as something that only God can do. Now, of course, little side note, we know that Jesus told Peter to come walking on the water out of the boat, and that's not found in in Mark's account. I think Mark wants to focus more straight on what the Savior's doing, but Matthew tells us that Peter, for a very short time, remember, walked on the water before his fear kicked in and he started to sink and Jesus had to save him. But we know that it wasn't within Peter, the man, to be able to do such a thing that that Jesus was temporarily granting him the ability to walk out to him to prove a point at that time. But back to what I was saying, there's several scriptures that point to the fact that walking on the water could only be done by God himself. Let me give you a few. Job 9.8. Job is talking about who God is. And he says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And then in Job 38.16, this time it's flipped around, It's God speaking to Job, and he asked Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? His point is, no, you haven't, Job. I alone have done these things. I am God, and you are not. And then a psalmist named Asaph praises God uh, in a psalm that he wrote that we know as Psalm 77. And in that psalm he says things like, What God is great like our God? He's the God who does wonders. With His arm He redeemed His people and so on and so forth. He talks about the thunder and the lightning that's all God's power and His doing and how the earth shakes before Him. And then in verse 19 of Psalm 77, he says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Again, Asaph is just talking about things that are unique to God. Who is great like our God? Who has done all these marvelous things like Walk on the sea. So when we see Jesus in this passage doing what only God himself can do, what is the proper conclusion for us to draw then? The proper conclusion is as we look at Jesus, here is God himself. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He is no ordinary man. And by the way, just to address some of the critics here, he's not walking on a sandbar. Believe it or not, that's what some critics say. Uh, He's not walking near the shore alongside the boat, as other critics have tried to say. The text is crystal clear. He's walking... On the water and um, again he's just doing what only God can do just proving once again that he is truly God in the flesh and Mark will show that to us over and over again in this gospel we've already seen it several times starting in the very first verse but he's going to show it to us over and over again so Knowing that, just think about this with me for a moment and let it, let it blow your mind, okay? The Savior of sinners is the God of the universe. He's not somebody who just has God's ear. He's not somebody who's just loosely affiliated with God. He's not just really good friends with God. He's not God's favorite guy, merely. He is God. That is amazing, isn't it? He's here to save his people. What kind of king does that? That's amazing. What kind of creator does that? This is our God. This is Him. But let's not only catch that um, main point, which is just this clear demonstration of Jesus's deity, but let's see a few other related things here that I pray will be helpful to us all. Here's some additional. truth nuggets, if you will, from this passage, okay? In no particular order. Here's about five things this morning. Here's the first one. Sometimes obeying Jesus means going through some trouble. I know we believe that. That's not earth-shattering for me to say that. But did you notice that this was a vivid example Of that, we have it demonstrated right here in front of us. Just just ask yourself with me were the disciples here obeying Jesus when they crossed over? Or were they disobeying him? Were they doing something they shouldn't have been doing? No. He told them to get in the boat and go over. The text actually says he. He compelled them. He made them. He, get it, he told them to get into the boat, go before him, go over to the other side, and they did. So they were obeying Jesus. And yet what happened to them? Hardship happened. Trouble happened. <laughs> and lest we forget, this just reminds us that obeying Jesus isn't always gonna be an easy path. He says to us, do this in his word in some portion that you're reading, do this. And we wanna say, okay, Lord, I'll do it. But that means you're gonna make it smooth sailing for me, right? If you're telling me to do it, you must, be, or you must be planning on just making the whole thing clear of any obstacles, any trouble, any hardship, right, Lord? That's our tendency, but he makes no such promise, does he? Obedience, we see it here. Obedience often leads to hardship. Especially in a world where following Jesus often means going against the cultural current, right? Spurgeon said this, Their sailing was not merely under his sanction, but by his express command. They were in the right place, and yet they met with a terrible storm. (laughs) We cannot judge the rightness of what we're doing by the wrong standard. Sometimes doing the right thing's hard, right? Jesus said, Count the cost, right? Obedience and faith and just being gloriously saved does not take away our hardships, earthly hardships. Another man, Alan Cole, in his commentary on Mark, he said something similar to Spurgeon. He said, the storm did not show that they had deviated from the path of God's will. Instead, God's path for them lay through the storm to the other shore of the lake. So apparently God wants us to go through some storms, right? We see it here. Sometimes it's in the storm that he comes to us. And he manifests himself to us in very powerful ways. Maybe that means we should embrace the storms. What do you think? We should not be storm avoiders. I'm going to try to avoid all storms. If there's a storm over there, then God must not be calling me to go through that because he would make everything so easy and clear if that was the path, right? No. We ought not be storm, storm avoiders. We should just obey Christ. And whatever storms that come are his storms, custom designed to bring us to new heights of awe and love and worship to him like it ended up here. What's something else we see? I love this. Our intercessor is a prayer warrior. I love this. What did Jesus do right after he dismissed the crowd? He goes up on the mountain to pray, right? Prayer was a regular habit of our Lord. And I find that fascinating and beautiful at the same time. Here's a man who has absolutely no need to ask for any forgiveness in prayer. He has no need to do what we did just a moment ago and have a prayer of confession. What is a sinless man going to confess? But yet he still went to his father in prayer regularly. That tells me something about prayer teaches me something about what prayer is that maybe we forget. It's not just a thing that sinful creatures do. It's, it's communion with God. It's submission to God's will. It's trust. And I'll say something here as a quick side note too. Don't get confused. Um, doctrinally speaking, Jesus is not praying to himself here, okay? Let's take just a short little rabbit trail. I know we just said at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus is God. But we need to remember um, the glorious, mind-stretching doctrine of the Trinity. God is one being, This is what scripture teaches. I'm just summarizing it for you quickly, okay? God is one being in three distinct persons. And if you want an analogy for that, I can't give you one because there's not another thing in the entire universe who is like him. There's nothing like him. And it's not because I haven't tried to think of analogy. It's just that all analogies fail. There's only one being that's God and has three distinct persons in the Godhead. It's mind-stretching, I admit. But we have to know what the Bible teaches clearly. It teaches that the Father is God, that the Son is God, And that the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. And the Spirit is not the Son or the Father or vice versa. They're distinct. And they're distinct in their ministry and roles too as you find in Scripture. So what is this when we see Jesus praying then? He's not praying to Himself. He is... Showing us a display of submission and reliance upon his Father while here on the earth. This is God the Son communing with God the Father and submitting to his will. Even when he prayed in the garden, right? Not your will, or not, excuse me, not my will, but yours be done, Father. That was his life motto, essentially, He was always submissive to the Father's will. His life was marked by obedience to the Father. Something that we fail at all the time, but Jesus accomplished with perfection. So, don't get confused when you read Jesus prayed. He's not praying to himself. This is an inter-Trinitarian prayer. Okay? We have... People in this room who are are at all different places in their spiritual understanding. So I just want to make that clear, okay? That may be easy and old news to you, but to some people it may not be. So he's talking to God the Father, communing with him, relying on him, and he is no doubt interceding for his people there. And as a matter of fact, that's what's on my mind With this particular point, his intercession. This man, this God-man, Christ Jesus, was a prayer warrior par excellence. We read of him sometimes praying all night. When's the last time you prayed all night? He did it. All the time. Praying all the time. And that just isn't an encouragement to us to have an active prayer life. It is that. But it's also a faith building thought to know. That the greatest prayer warrior of all time is my intercessor. He is at the Father's right hand right now interceding on my behalf. We don't have a lackluster prayer as our intercessor. We have a prayer warrior par excellence as our intercessor. Hebrews tells us that Jesus lives to make intercession for those he has saved. That's Hebrews 7.25 There's other verses that talk about his intercession. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Intercession for the transgressors. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, Who indeed is interceding for us. That means he's there at God's right hand, advocating for us, mediating for us, being our high priest before God. There is one before the Father who has taken up our cause and who has paid all of our debts. Praise the Lord. And I'm just pointing out here that we have the greatest prayer warrior to ever live as our intercessor in heaven. It's like Jesus' prayer life on earth just carried right over into heaven. He was constantly praying while he was here. And when he ascended back to heaven, his prayer ministry continues to this very day. It's active right now. And that's a thing of beauty. You, Christian, have an advocate before the Father right now. He's not on break. The funds didn't run out, so he stopped like lawyers do. (laughs) He's there interceding for his people because he loves his people. And he will never stop. We have prayer meetings every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we also pray a good bit at our Wednesday night Bible study. And um, I know that you who have attended those meetings, you can sense and feel how encouraging and comforting it is to hear another believer praying out loud for you. Have you experienced that? Just raise your hand if you've experienced that. It is wonderful to know people are praying for you and even to hear them. You just told them what you wanted to pray for and what's going on in your life, and they're praying for you right there. That's encouraging. That's comforting. But that comfort and encouragement just reaches new heights when we know that right now, at this very moment, God the Son is at the right hand of his Father interceding for his people, us. Again, he will not stop. He will not take a break. He doesn't need one. He was a man of prayer here. He's a man of prayer there. He's keeping on going for his people. Matthew Henry, great Puritan preacher, said this. It is a comfort to Christ's disciples in a storm that their master is on the heavenly mount interceding for them. He he, he takes his picture of the disciples are down in the storm. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. That's us down there. And our Savior is on that heavenly mount interceding for us. He says that is a great comfort to Christ's people. We are well taken care of, brothers and sisters. That's what I'm trying to say. Next, this is number three. God's timing is often a mystery to us. We know that. But look at it demonstrated here again. Jesus goes up on the mountain His disciples are struggling down on the sea and it's not until the fourth watch of the night that He goes out to them. If you didn't know, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch of the night. So picture that. Jesus is up on the mountain praying in the middle of the night. He must have been up there for several hours. By the way... Was there, a, was there a, a bright moon out that night? Or is this even another miracle? That Jesus saw them out on the water in the middle of the night? In a windstorm? Struggling in the middle of the sea? Maybe. We're not sure how he sees them except for a miracle perhaps. But they're having a rough time, to say the least. Um, the ESV, which, what I read from, it says, it says, They were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Those Greek words, they literally carry the meaning of, They were tortuously rowing. It was torture out there. They could not make any progress. The wind was against them. But the Savior looks out and sees them, just like he sees us, by the way. And yet he doesn't go out there until sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Now, we don't know exactly what time he saw them, but we know he let them struggle for a little while because it says they were tortuously rowing. It kind of reminds me of the time people said, Hey, Jesus. Your friend Lazarus is sick. What did Jesus do? Interestingly, he did not go immediately. You remember that? He waited. John eleven six. 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? And we're confused sometimes by God's timing, right? Not now, though, looking back on what happened. What happened, though? By the time he got there, Lazarus was dead. Was that a mistake? Was that a miscalculation by Jesus? Lazarus' sister says through tears, no doubt, if you'd have only been here sooner, Lord, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she doesn't get it. She says, I I know he'll rise again at the end of the age when people are resurrected. I know that, Lord. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to raise him right now. (laughs) And he does exactly that. And it's another display of his godness. Jesus calling out his dead friend out of the tomb. And here he comes walking out, alive as ever. My point there, though, is that if he hadn't delayed coming to them, none of them would have got to witness him raising a man from the dead. They would not have got to witness that particular display of power and sovereignty over death, would they? They might have have got to see him heal Lazarus. But Jesus said, I'm going to show you something better this time. I'm gonna stay right here for two more days, and my friend Lazarus is gonna die. But guess what? I'm gonna raise him again. <laughs> Amazing. We say in the midst of that, we say, "What's the delay for, Lord? Why do you seem silent right now?" Or we say in the uh, the words of the psalmist, "How long, O Lord?" That's a common question from the creature to the creator. But not one time has God ever been late. Never once. Just like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, he arrives precisely when he means to. I can't talk like Gandalf. He arrives precisely when he means to. In the meantime, what are we supposed to do? We wait and we trust and we keep rowing. We just keep rowing because that's what he told us to do. Go to the other side. Maybe they were out there in the storm. Said, Let's just turn around. The wind's too bad. And one of them says, no, no. Jesus told us to go to the other side and that's what we're doing. Keep rowing. Keep trusting. He has never failed us once. And he's going to do something good with that timing that you think is a little off. I have to remember this too. Well, something else we see here, very simple, number four, Jesus came to them in their storm. It seems so obvious But it needs to be said. I mean, look at verse 48, the second half of it. It says, He came to them walking on the sea. Isn't that great? He doesn't leave his people to fend for themselves, he goes to them. He's with them, he gets in the boat with them. And by the way, the wind ceases amazing. One day in heaven, maybe we'll get to talk to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Read Daniel chapter 3, if you don't know those three names. And I bet they'll tell us the same thing. God came to us. He hopped in the fire with me, He was the fourth man in the fire. You remember that? Wait a minute, didn't we throw three guys in? The king said, there's four. And one of them looks like the son of God. Mm. Preserving them, going to them, getting in the trouble with them and preserving them through it. That's what he does. There's a song that says, sometimes he calms the storm but other times, he calms his child. That's true, isn't it? And really, if you just back up and you take a, um, like a bird's-eye view of what Jesus has done in this story of redemption, this is the story of the incarnation. Didn't he come to us? He came to us in our storm, didn't he? He hopped in the boat with us. He took on flesh and came to us, got in the boat with us in that storm and calmed it, fixed it. What a God. He says in John 14, 18 to 19, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. So Jesus, in one sense, he's always with us. In another sense, he's still yet to come because he's going to come back in bodily form, right? And bring us home with him. And we talked about last week on Easter. Because Jesus was raised, we will one day be raised and enter into glory with him. Wow. He is came to us, and that's why all that's true. I love that phrase. He came to them. And then number five, just lastly for today, the words he meant to pass by them indicate something like an Old Testament theophany. I realize I may have to explain what that means. A theophany in the Old Testament was when God manifested himself in some way to man. And it's very interesting when we compare the phraseology or the wording here in our passage today with some Old Testament theophanies. The text says that Jesus meant To pass by them. Now, I don't think that that merely means that it was his intention to walk out on the water without being seen and just meet them on the other side. Do you think that's what it means? I don't think so either. I want you to think back with me to the book of Exodus when Moses asked God to show him his glory. That's Exodus 33. What does God say in reply? Do you remember? Let me read a portion of it. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, this protective area, kind of in this little mini cave, if you will, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by And if you look, very interesting, if you look in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, that is the same exact phrase that we see in Mark 6, 48. And then one chapter later, back in Exodus, Exodus 34, 6, it says, you remember that passage where the Lord is talking about who he is, he's, He's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and so forth. Right before that, as he's about to describe himself and reveal himself, he says, the text rather says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and so forth. So there's the phraseology again. The Lord passed before him, passed by him, and proclaimed some things about himself. You could see this in other places too. We just don't have time to go to them all. You could see it in 1 Kings 19 when God is talking to Elijah. Same thing, passed before him. So what I think is happening here when Jesus says, or when the text says Jesus meant to pass by them, I think it's saying that it was his intention to show them his glory and to reveal himself in a way that they have not seen before. We could say it this way. He intended to manifest himself to them. They had seen him do some pretty amazing things, but they had not seen him walk on water And in fact, some of the things that they saw him do, even recently in the book of Mark, like feed thousands of people with just a little bit of food, he says they didn't really get it. They didn't understand about the loaves, says verse 52. They didn't catch the significance of it. And so he goes out to them, walking on the sea, meaning to pass by them in the sense of, I'm going to show these guys who I am. And ironically, they miss it again, don't they? At least at first. They think, it's a ghost. Let's not be too hard on them, though. Have you ever missed God in certain circumstances? You know, he revealed himself to you in some way, and then you only recognized it later because you were too dense to see it at the time. I'll raise my hand. So they're beside themselves. They're screaming. They probably needed some adult diapers. They <laughs> this sight was of such um, supernatural flavor that it made grown men scream out in fear because they actually thought they were seeing a ghost. And he has to reassure them and say something that he had to say quite often, actually. It's me, don't be afraid. This was surely a theophany-like event. There's actually even more evidence for it, if you can believe it. He uses these words to them. Ego I me. In the ESV, it's translated, it is I. But what we don't uh, easily catch in English is this? That is the exact phrase in the Greek Old Testament for the name of God when He calls Himself the I Am. Is that amazing? If you read Exodus three, when God is talking to Moses and He says, "You tell the people of Israel that I Am has sent you," you tell them "ego I me sent you and there's other examples of this of course that Jesus used very clearly like John eight fifty eight. he's telling the Pharisees very clearly who he is truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am ego I me so yeah sometimes that phrase can mean it's me or, it is I. But when you consider the context of what's going on in Mark 6, I think it's kind of a, a revealing wordplay that kind of has a double meaning. He's displaying his deity to them on the water by walking on the sea, and he uses the phrase, ego imi. So it's like it could, it could simultaneously be. Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. As well as, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. I think that fits right in with what Jesus is doing here. He's going to pass by them in order to manifest himself to them. And he gives them this kind of theophany-like experience. And what's the big deal with talking about that? Well, when someone asks you why you believe in Jesus rather than some other God of some other religion, you can say, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus came to this earth. He claimed to be God himself. And then he backed it up with many proofs in the sight of many people over the course of multiple occasions And the eyewitnesses wrote about it in the scriptures. And ultimately he manifested himself when he rose from the dead. Hello, there's an empty tomb. Buddha's dead. Muhammad is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Gandhi is dead. Every so called prophet of every other religion is dead, or if they're still living as a so called prophet, they will die someday. But Jesus died and rose again. And when somebody does that, they have proved who they are. And you can say, That's why I believe Jesus. That's what we can say. And when we read Mark 6, the testimony of Scripture is crystal clear. Here is God in human flesh, who is also our Savior, who sees His people and goes out to His people in their distress and rescues them. God is so kind, isn't He? I hope those nuggets from Mark 6 helps build up your faith this morning. Let's pray together and we'll close. Father, thank you for this passage that demonstrates the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, not only that, not only his deity, but we see his care and his timing and his intercession and so many other things. Lord, may we increasingly worship him and seek his face Lord make us more like him in his holy character help us to live up to our name of Christians Lord help us to trust him whatever he sends us into we pray all this in Jesus name Amen